0: Good morning once again. I've got a question I want to ask you as we uh, prepare to begin this morning. Um, show of hands, how many of you have seen the Star Wars movie yet? Okay, all right, you're good. All right, How many of you have your tickets? You haven't gone yet, but you've already got your tickets in hand. There we go, that's good. I am, I am fascinated I am fascinated about the attraction of this um, this movie, this Star Wars movie. And I don't think that it is now, it's reported to have grossed upwards of $250 million since Thursday, uh, making it one of the highest grossing movies ever. But it's not just slick marketing. It's It's a desire to once again step back and go into an auditorium and place ourselves in an environment where everything is dialed in to take us to a universe far and far away. We put ourselves in the movie. We return to childhood. And we allow ourselves to leave at the door the dreariness or the heaviness of adulthood, and we become a child again. A child who can go here and we can, we can believe that there are actually uh, colonies in other universes and that there are Jedi Knights and there's a, there's a battle between good and evil and we just know that the good, though having many close calls, is going to be victorious. I don't think that it's any accident that at Christmas time, these huge stories of good versus evil and return to our childhood, where we actually may be tempted to believe that once again, well, he's real. Santa Claus is real, just in case I got a kid in the building here. But we're tempted again to believe in fairies and elves. We're tempted to believe in these great, great. Battles and journeys of a person coming from obscurity and then rising to the occasion to fight, to deliver us, or to lead us. And we're a part of that fellowship. This morning, I want once again to visit Matthew 1. And in Matthew 1, I want to look at the names of Jesus but we're not going to find all the names that I want to put before you this morning uh, in Matthew 1. We're going to look over to Isaiah 9, and then we're going to camp out on verse 6. But first of all, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so a just man, not a cruel man. Not a man that is going to put her to shame. Not a man that's going to call her out and put her forward as someone that is pregnant by another source rather than him. He is a good man. He's in what we call the horns of a dilemma. He wants to obey God, not marry a woman that he can only humanly, finite mind imagine has committed an act of adultery. So he wants to obey God, but he loves Mary, and he's a kind man. He's a gracious man. He's a just man. He doesn't want to put her to shame. So he's on the horns of a dilemma, and he resolves to say... I'll put her away, it's like a divorce, quietly. No one will know. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now the angel of the Lord here is not Gabriel. The angel of the Lord, this is is the appearance. It's not a vision, but it's the words coming from God. It's God Himself is now intervening and he is speaking to Joseph. He's speaking through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I've been at work, and if you know and you've looked at the trajectory of the Scripture, he's been at work for not simply 2,000 years when in Isaiah, a child was promised to be born and he would be the Messiah, but he's been at work since creation and when we left the garden and he said, I will restore you. Eventually there will come one whose heel will be bitten by Satan but he will crush his head. I will rescue my people through a coming Messiah. So he's been at work. And so he's saying this is something that the Holy Spirit has been work, at work on for a long time, and now it's come to fruition. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There would have been loads and loads of little boys named Jesus. Much like in our own homes We light Advent candles, we don't just keep them, or we have an Advent calendar. There would have been loads of Yeshua's to say one day, one day our deliverer will come and he's going to be named Yeshua. I'm going to name you Yeshua in anticipation. Or perhaps it will be you. Perhaps you will be the great Joshua fighting, delivering his people. For he will save his people from their sins. He will be a deliverer. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is out of Isaiah, and we're going to look at that in just a moment to see names that really encompass the person and the work of Jesus Christ as man and God fully. We can know him by his names, and we will do so. And here there's given a very earthly name, he will be a man, Jesus. And there's given a divine name, he'll be Emmanuel. He will be God, and he will dwell with us and be present with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, what did he do? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed God. And I don't believe he did it with any reluctance because he loved Mary. There was a third way. And this way was to take her with God's blessings because of the work that he was doing. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And then what did he do? He called his name Emmanuel. So we've seen in the last couple of weeks that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. And he's in one person. And he is that now and forever. So Jesus, right now, has a physical body at the right hand of God in heaven. And yet he is also with us. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Christ... The presence of God, Emmanuel, is with you. He didn't leave when he went to the heavens. He's in both heaven and he's with us. He's here this morning. But he's here this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he is fully man, fully God, now and forever. We see in the incarnation in Matthew 1, verses 21 and 23, that he is Jesus and the work there that that name forecast is he will save his people from his sins. That's why, that's why we, we at Two Rivers, we boast in the name of Jesus. We love to repeat the name Jesus. We love, to, we love the sound of it. When we pray, you'll hear Jesus a lot. The reason is every time that we pronounce Jesus... Every time we pronounce Jesus, they're late for church, I've got to tell you that. Every time we pronounce the name Jesus, you're actually making a proclamation, not simply about a, a moniker to identify him, but you're actually saying, every time I pronounce the name Jesus, this is what he does. This is Jesus. He will deliver his people. He will deliver me from my sins. You could just pray one word, Jesus. Deliver me from my sins. Jesus, you have delivered me from my sins. Jesus, you're still interceding for my sins. Secondly, in the incarnation, they shall call his name Emmanuel. The impact of that is that name means that he's not just a distant God, but this God is with us, that he's present. He didn't just do a work for me, die in my place, forgive me, pronounce forgiveness on my sin, and then leave me to work out my life on my own. I hope you don't think that. You've set yourself up for failure if you do think that. Imagine a judge sitting in his robes behind the bench. And there you stand before him and you're, you're trembling. You know that the bailiff's going to come in just a few moments and take you out the side door. They're going to take. They're going to imprison you for a long time. But then, there's a lawyer, an advocate, Jesus, that comes and he not only defends you. There's nothing to defend, really. He says he is guilty and he confesses. But I will take his place. I will go out the side door. I'll take the punishment. And the judge says, "Is that agreeable for both of you?" You say, "Yes." The judge bangs his gavel. They lead Jesus through. They take Him to prison, to execution. What of you? Do you now leave the court? and You say, wow, I'm never going to do those things again. I'm going to be straight. I'm going to get it together. Wow, I've got a second chance here. And then all of a sudden, there's someone saying, wait up. The judge has taken off his robe. He's there walking beside you. And he says, I'll never leave you. You're going to screw up. (laughs) You're going to want direction. You're going to want encouragement. You're going to want power. You're going to want me with you. I've saved you. I will keep saving you. I will keep you. I will craft you. And you say, wow, that's, that's... He says, I will be a father to you. And you will be like a son or a daughter to me. And I will show you how to grow in the image of your older brother. My older brother, yeah, he was that attorney who defended you and died in your place. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. How powerful is that name? Let's unpack that name this morning with this prayerful response, the more I understand the names of Jesus, the more I unpack the names of Jesus, my response will be worship. My response will be to see the beauty of those names so that the sound of those names, be they in the song or in someone else's lips or reading them in the Bible, that whenever I hear the name of Jesus or any of his names, I will just worship in awe and wonder. That's what Paul, in writing to the little church in Philippians, was saying one day, one day, when he comes back and we hear the name of Jesus, not only you, but all nations, all men, women, children, all races, all cultures, be they followers of Christ or not, they'll bow at that name. They will respond to that name. So my question is, do you know Him by name? I mean, do you know Him by name? Do you experience Him by name? Honey, bunny, would you please... Thank you. Um, Do you know him by name? Helen Keller, when she, when Ann Sullivan, Helen Keller being blind, and at that time Ann Sullivan was hired by the family to come. She was not only blind, but she was also deaf, and she was mute, totally in the dark, totally, totally in a dark universe. Ann Sullivan came and began to teach her. She began to teach her using her hand and spelling out sign language in her hand. She began to teach her vocabulary. And she began to teach her from the Bible. Now Helen Keller had never heard anything. She'd never heard the sound of a human voice. She's been in the dark. She's been in the black. And Ann Sullivan begins to talk to her and she's beginning to build a vocabulary and she begins to talk to her about Jesus who is there in the dark. Jesus. His name is Jesus. And Helen Keller goes, I knew Him. I knew Him. I've known Him. I just never knew His name. I just never knew His name. Well, thank God. We are not in the dark. Perhaps so you've been in the dark with some of His names. But I want to take a few minutes now in the time that remains. And I want to share with you out of Isaiah 9, verse 6. One verse, four names. Four names that we should know Jesus Christ by. Isaiah 9, 6 says this. Far to us, A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I'd like to rearrange that and start with Mighty God. Because Mighty God is saying that Unlike the other three, this is really who he is. To know him as mighty God is his title. It's like saying doctor so and so. That's a part of a person's name. Oh, believe me, people that get their doctorate many times. I mean, the only time I use doctor is in really nice restaurants where I want to get a good seat and not be put next to the bathroom. And it's also helpful when you go into hospitals or to prisons. It's like, for some reason, they're kind of impressed with that. I don't know why. Um, But that becomes that. It's a title. It becomes a part of your name. And the word here for mighty is translated hero, hero god. So he's not simply a god up in the cosmos. But he's a hero God who is still at work on our behalf. He's mighty God. And what Isaiah is saying here in this title is, okay, so I pulled this up out of my um, flower bed because, frankly, it's overgrown, it's uh, shot. But don't, don't pay attention to the quality of this. Um, but imagine that this plant represents Jesus. So I know, stretch your imagination, be a perfect plant. So Jesus Christ was born. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place. They buried him. Three days later, he rose again. Forty days later, he ascended into the heavens. Earth, dirt, man, dirty stuff. Okay? But now, you would be wrong. In fact, it would be a heresy. If you believe that Jesus, He's pulled up now out of the earth, He's ascended into heaven, and you, He has no connection to us. The vine, which is another name for Jesus, has been severed. So that the vine is in no longer in contact with its branches. Or When I pulled this up, there were lots of vines left there. But He was separated. No. Imagine that now that He's in the heaven those vines still reach all the way into earth and into me. And those vines, He is still coursing through my life, giving me faith. That's not something that I conjure up on my own. I pray, help my unbelief, curb my doubts, answer my fears, give me strength in facing this temptation. And I'm not just going through the universe hoping, hoping, hoping that he hears me. He's as close as my own hand is to my ear. The vine is not severed. That's what mighty God means. He's a hero, but he's not a distant hero. He's a hero even now interceding on my behalf. Then, with the remaining three names, we see the Trinity. We see the Trinity. Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, and then the Prince, Jesus of Peace. But Jesus is all three. As a member of the Trinity, He wears all three of these names and interacts with them. Look at Wonderful Counselor. John 14, verses 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. That's the word for Counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And here's Jesus, these are His words, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So in the very realist sense, and sometimes it's used interchangeably, when you say, the Holy Spirit dwells within, that's Jesus. Jesus dwells in me. Jesus dwells in me. And He dwells in me as a spirit of truth. He dwells in me as a wonderful counselor. You've got a problem. You go to see a psychiatrist, psychologist. You go to see a counselor. Do you want that counselor to just blow smoke? Do you want that counselor just to say, oh, poor baby, or oh, I don't think there's a problem at all? Or do you want that counselor to help you to see things as they really are, to see the truth, and then seeing reality help me to embrace reality and to live in that reality? Of course you do. That's the spirit of truth. We see that in Matthew 1. The Holy Spirit is all about Christmas. The reality of Christmas is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And what does He do to a troubled Joseph? Even as earlier He has done with a troubled Mary. He comes to them and gives them counsel. He gives them assistance. He opens their eyes that they might see. I pray this morning that you'll adopt one of these four names before you leave. Perhaps this morning you need a counselor. Too long you have been relying upon your own self. You've been making decisions alone. And in a microwave generation, in a microwave society, we make decisions that are impulsive. We Very rarely do we sit on something for a month to make a decision. But you've come to see yourself in a situation that you need direction. If God would only weigh in. If God would give you a counselor to listen and then to advise and direct. But He has. And He's a wonderful counselor. There's no one like Him. It's the very Spirit of Jesus. And He awaits us He awaits us to come and to share with Him our anxieties and our fears, our wants and our dreams, our problems, or the things that are troubling us, or things that are very, very serious It's a decision point. May we include Him and invite Him to come and to lead us in making those decisions. Let me tell you what can happen if you do that. John and Brenda fought like cats and dogs. They'd been married a number of years. John had become a Christian, and I was his pastor. And Brenda would normally come around Christmas or Easter, but not regularly. But we we knew them well and had them in our home and been in their home. And John approached me and he said, Boy, I've really, I'm on the horns of a dilemma. But he says, I've made a decision, I'm going to divorce her. I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to divorce her. And I said, John, I, I don't think that's, I think that's more you speaking. What do you think God says? Have you invited God to weigh in on this? He says, well, I don't think God wants us to argue like we're arguing, but I'll, I'll pray. I'll ask God to be my counselor. I'll ask God, and whatever He directs me as the true and the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. John uh, communicated to me that uh, about two weeks later, he said, um, what are you doing this Tuesday? He says, Brenda's having back surgery, and I just, I'm going to be sitting in the hospital. And I just thought maybe you could sit with us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to know. I'll be there. Got to the hospital. Surgery, they opened up her for surgery. They found cancer of such a nature that they said, there's no surgery, there's no treatment, um, we're not going to do the back surgery, we're not going to do any cancer surgery. I mean, we, they did a biopsy while they were waiting. They said, this, she's, she's going to die. So we were waiting uh, for her to get out of recovery, and John looked at me and said, I'm not going to divorce her. That's my answer. I said, really, this is severe. He says, he says I'm not a jerk. He said i'm going to nurse her and i'm going to take care of her and just hope that we don't fight but i'm not a jerk i'm not going to leave her as it turned out those became the best she was she remained for about another year but that was the best year of his life he would never remarry because he said there's not another one like brenda not the one that i had the last year And he says, I am so glad that God kept me there in that situation and at her deathbed. I was at her deathbed. Brenda said, John, it's been a wonderful year. I'm going now. I'll see you in heaven. She had become a Christian. What if he had just made all the decisions on his own energy? What if he didn't have a wonderful counselor? And the Spirit speaks in many ways. Gives us counsel. Uh, Everlasting Father, John 10, verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life. This is Jesus in the Good Shepherd passage. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is what got Jesus killed. This is what got Jesus killed. He said, I am. I'm the great I am. Before Abraham was, I was. I was at the beginning of the creation of the world. The world was spoken into existence with me. He said, I and the Father are one. And they said, Blasphemy. They said, blasphemy. They said, No, no man can be the Father. And and you can't be the Father. God is impersonal and institutional, and He's just stained glass, and He's so He's so far and He's so clean, and He doesn't get down into the The sin sickness of our leprosy and our drunkenness and our prostitution. He said, no, I'm I'm the father. And the consequence of that title is that no one can take you from my hand. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, don't be like the Gentiles or the pagans. Don't be like those that don't know me that they run about and they worry about where are we going to get food, where are we are going to get clothes, where are we going to get shelter. He says, you have a father. You have a father. Don't be an orphan. Be a son or a daughter. One of our great acts of treachery and rebellion is many times we'll look to God the Father and we'll say, you're not good to me. Because you're not giving me what I want, I need to take care of me. You just don't understand. And we go our own way. We make our own way. We, we choose our own way. And we begin to act like an orphan without a father. But the father doesn't quit. We can't even snatch ourselves from his hands. He continues to come back over and over and over again and seek us out. Um... There's a lot of conversation going on about um, refugees and immigrations and visas and allowing people to come into the country and folks that are in the country, getting them out of the country. I was at the Citadel during the years of the Jimmy Carter administration, and we had a number of Middle Eastern students. We had a number of Jordanians. We had a lot of Iranians because... We had the Shah of Iran that we kept in power. He was overthrown by Ayatollah Khomeini. And being overthrown, Jimmy Car- he also uh, took American hostages. Jimmy Carter had a couple of reactions, and one was to send all the Iranian students who would be considered tainted, Americanized, send them back to Iran. He revoked their visas. Abel. And that's, just his, that's not his real name, but Abel, an Iranian student who attended the Fellowship of Christian Athletes with me, came to my room one night and he said, I am going to have to leave. I'm going to have to leave the country and I'm going to have to go back to Iran. And he says, I am facing certain death for two reasons. Number one, I've been Americanized, I'm tainted. And number two, I'm a Christian. What do you tell somebody who is getting ready to face evil? What do you tell somebody who is going through a period of great, great suffering? What do you tell them? What do you tell somebody who is afraid of the dark because it's so very, very, very alone? You tell them, Jesus is an everlasting Father. You tell them that you're not alone, Jesus will be with you. You're saying, You have a Father. And he will not allow you to suffer one moment more or any degree more than is absolutely in your best interest to shape you as a son and a daughter. Abel, you're not going to face that alone. Your father is with you. The father goes with you. Lastly, Prince of Peace We read, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Mark this, this is before Jesus goes to the cross. He is talking to them about in a short while he is going to be falsely uh, tried, he will Go to the cross, he's going to die in their place, but he doesn't want them to be fearful. That God is at work even in these sorrowful, bitter, suffering circumstances. He says, Peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Peace. In John 20, this is after the resurrection when he first appears to the disciples. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands inside. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 18, we see what this looks like. This peace that he's talking about is not a greeting, it's a proclamation. When the prince of peace, when the prince, think about that. That's his realm. That's his domain. That's what he does. It's like saying the prince of rap, you know. Well, he's the prince of peace. So he doesn't just say it. He proclaims it. It's like peace, peace, peace. And the two types of peace that he gives are peace with God and peace with man. And we see that here in Ephesians 2 verses 13 through 18 when it's connected where it says that once in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, skip down so making peace that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I became a uh, Christian at the Citadel and... Becoming convinced that my sins were forgiven in this by this prince of peace, Jesus Christ, I became immediately conscious, aware, and convicted that I needed to show peace to others. For you see, I was a very, very angry young man violent. I one of the ways that I knew that I was a new believer, that I had been converted, was God took and He it was like pouring water on a heart that was just on fire with anger. That I became peace. My own family members didn't recognize me. They thought, and this is the '70s, so we weren't that far removed from the, the '60s and. The the, the cults were very active at that time. My parents, when they first saw me on furlough, thought that I had joined a cult because I was so laid back and so peaceful. They didn't care. They were like, keep it up. Whatever you're smoking or whatever incense is making it work, stay at peace. But when I became convinced that God was not mad at me anymore because Jesus had made peace with the Father, then I said, I've got to now take that and show peace to others. And I began to approach people and be reconciled with them. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. He's saying two stark groups, the Gentiles and the Jews. Because Jesus has now made peace with God, look at them make peace with one another. And that becomes one piece. It's the two rivers' vision. That as we experience the river, the peace, the love, the grace from God, as we really experience Him and we know Him by that name of Prince of Peace, that we can now in the horizontal, we can show it to others. Maybe the Spirit this morning is speaking to you. And you need to be reminded that God's not mad at you anymore because this Prince of Peace has worked effectively and He's made peace on your behalf. Or, perhaps you know that, but as you begin to know Him more intimately by name, you recognize there's some peacemaking that you need to do this season. For that's why He came, is to make peace with God and that we might live at peace with all men. Shohan. Sebastian Bach. He was deemed to be the greatest composer ever. There's some people that will challenge that, particularly with Handel this season, but across the board with the compositions of his life and the quality of those compositions, he's the best. There was a piece that he was working on when he died. It was called The Art of the Fugue. It was Fort. 15 fugues, and at least four canons. And the final fugue, just known as the fugue, in the art of the fugue, he didn't complete. In fact, his son says he died in the the room that he was composing it. Musicians or musicologists debate as to whether or not it was even made, the art of the fugue, was made to be played or just studied, because it was so grand and so so grandiose and so so intricate and so beautiful, they couldn't find anybody to play it for three centuries. as they were looking at that last unfinished piece, they noticed something. They noticed something that they came to call the Bach motif because they would find it in his other works. And the Bach motif is this, where there is a repeating measure that has a B-flat, an A, a C, and then A B-sharp or a B-natural, excuse me, a B-natural. Which in German, that B turns to an H. So that throughout his compositions, his name will appear. In the grand work, the moving work, as you're experiencing the, the Bach work, his name shows up. And we're not even aware. Jesus Christ has many, many, many names. And I pray this morning that you'll experience Him by name. That it will help you and assist you in your your fellowship with Him and in your prayers. That you'll read these names and they won't just be thrown out as titles or distant names. A resume. there will be names that you now know Him and experience Him by. As those names are given to you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, you would be the mightiest God in our life. And I pray at Two Rivers that you would walk among us as a wonderful counselor, directing us. I pray that you would be the everlasting Father of Two Rivers. That we would not be orphans, but we would be sons and daughters. That to hear the name Father would be a proclamation of great renown. And Father, that you would be the Prince of Peace. That once again, you would walk through two rivers this morning and you would, you would remind me of peace being made with God and peace being made with men. So Father, we ask your blessings as we now prepare to approach this table in the very name of Christ. Amen.